Welcome to Humanly, the podcast searching for the truth about health and wellness. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Humanly. Daniel Reuters here. Today, I'm joined by Emerus Goldsworthy from Athletic and Physical Health. Emerus, welcome. It's great to be on the podcast again. Yeah, great to have you back. We were having a discussion the other day about some pretty interesting things in relation to pain and musculoskeletal injury and it was kind of blowing my mind and when you were telling me about it i thought it was a great idea to get you back on the podcast to talk about what you found not only in your own clinic but by looking through some of the research on things like pain and injury uh maybe the best way to get into this topic is i've had back pain for a long time and when I originally did the injury, I went to the doctor and they did a scan on my back and they found a little bulge in a disc in my back and they said, oh, that's the problem. Yeah. And that seems to be like the culprit of a lot of people's back pain is, is these disc bulges, which they say impede on a nerve. Yeah. And when that nerve's impe- impeded, uh, then you get pain. But your perspective is a little bit different Mm. Uh, to that, which sort of challenges that long-held belief about disc bulges and also muscle tears and tendinopathies or, or tendon tears and these kinds of things. Uh, so I'm really interested to hear your perspective again, um, as we discussed this the other day. And I know that your level of understanding is fairly sophisticated in this topic, but the majority of listeners probably don't have a background uh, such that they're able to understand really complicated and, and complex terminologies. So I know you do this really well uh, to take those really complex topics and then simplify it down for people to understand. So yeah, do you want to fill us in on, on where we are at the moment with understanding pain and, and musculoskeletal injury? We'll just start with your history and just use that as an example to see on a, on a daily basis in my own clinic. And I'll back this, these statements up with, with evidence and research. But so people go to the doctor with back pain, any pain. So use back pain as a, as a good starting point because it's very, very common. Lower back pain is the most common ailment of musculoskeletal origin. And people go in, they go, and they often get an MRI, they might get an X-ray, they might get an ultrasound, maybe a CT scan. They're the basic four scans you'll get, okay? MRI is specifically designed to find fluid. It's specifically designed to find inflammation. CT scan is specifically designed to find structure. Like It's very good at finding things like tumours, things like that. Just It's, a, it's more of a three-dimensional view. They're very good together. But the problem is, is they do not see everything. So contrary to popular belief, people think that MRI is by the gold standard. And in a way it is, but that doesn't mean it sees everything. There's a raft of conditions and problems that we will mention today that it just can't see. And maybe one day it will. But at this point, we're only looking at a small proportion of what could be causing pain. Now, when they go and see a disc bulge on it, they presume that that must be the culprit due to basically reduction. There's nothing else there. 
Therefore, that must be it. And unfortunately, their logic is faulty because one, I'll explain today, disc bulges have never been proven to cause pain. There's zero evidence that they cause pain. In fact, studies which I have read uh, have shown that disc herniation, disc protrusion, disc bulge, there's lots of variety of extremes of it. And it goes up all the way up to a thing called sequestration where the fluid seeps out. At least to the herniation level, which is quite bulged out, protruding on nerve, nerve structures more than likely, has basically been shown to be not painful at all. If when you compare someone, a group of people with herniated discs and another group, one has got pain, one has no pain. They have the same prevalence of the disc bulges and herniations. So you can't associate pain in the lower back with these conditions when the same number appears in both groups. You know, that's classic reasoning. If you go, they're almost equal in both groups, it suggests that there's no association. So the people with disc bulges have as much pain in their back as people without disc bulges. So if one group has lower back pain, severity may vary from person to person. And then the next group doesn't have back pain. The likelihood of them having disc bulges is the same. Right. Which basically means it's as as likely the cause as a wrinkle on your face. And it's not, (laughs) you're, you're pointing the finger at the wrong thing, right? And there's all these studies that will show you that it's painful and all that. But what you won't see in those studies is an appropriate look at all the potential sources. You know, you've had lots of discussions about immunology and they have this tendency towards honing in on one thing and then it becomes so biased towards that one thing that they overlook everything else. And that's what's occurred with discs as an example. Now, there are other kinds of conditions in the lower back, spondylolisthesis, where the vertebra shifts forward out of alignment and it looks terrible on a scan. You think that's got to be painful. But actually the evidence suggests that a a large portion of people, um, I'll get the numbers, uh, of people actually have that and no pain. So if we get get to this uh, famous study done um, back in 2014 from the Journal of Neuroradiology, it was a systematic literature review on imaging of spinal disorders in non-painful subjects, people who have no pain, okay? Each number is different depending on your age, right? And that's, that's going to be the crux of this is that your likelihood of having something, quote-unquote, painful and bad on a scan goes up as you get older. There's no doubt. I mean, the, what we're, the argument is is that these are just signs of aging. They're not necessarily injuries that are painful. And the other argument is that they're adaptations. There are, if for things to change in a positive way, get stronger, change their structure to adapt to the situation in which you're in, maybe you're very, very sedentary and your structure is not appropriate for that, or you're an athlete and your structure is not appropriate for that, and it needs to change. The body is very adaptable. So when you see these things, it could just be adaptations, not disease, as you would be told, right? So, for example, if you're a 20-year-old, the prevalence of 
degenerative, it's about 26, 27. The, the prevalence of degenerative disc disease is 50%. So 50% of 26 to 27-year-olds have degenerative disc disease. Yeah. Wow. I never realized. Very, I never would have thought yeah. that that would be very, that high. Yeah. Um, in, if you're about age uh, 30, the prevalence of a disc bulge is 40%. Bulges. So if anyone is saying to me in the clinic, they'll come in and say, oh, I've got a bad back, but I do have a disc bulge, hmm. I'll say, and that's probably why it's still there because that bulge. Well, interesting thing about a lot of these bulges is that a lot of them actually just resolve. Bulges in themselves, we, we, we have to just start at this point and say, disc bulge is just a mild protrusion, okay? Absolutely. Just to, sorry, even just to take it, even more simply, yeah. Uh, so, like, what is a disc bulge? Just in really, really simple, really terms. basic. A disc is like a very fibrous cushion that sits between your vertebral bones, and it just sits there and it squashes like this between your vertebrae or your spinal bones, like this. And it takes shock. It restricts motion as well because these two bones are stuck together with it, and it restricts motion. And it kind of guides them as they move around, okay? So it is a very important structure. But what, what a bulge is, is where a portion of it moves out of it and it might move sideways, might move back, and it's no longer the normal shape. So mm. It just has a bulging area, okay? There's a protrusion where it's even more. So they're kind of similar. There's just protrusion is a little bit more um, out of its alignment, out of its normal shape. And, and, and there's an image that you could show um, to explain that, but there's this varying level. So the varying levels generally are considered bulge is the lowest um, intensity of bulging. So we call it bulge. Then protrusion is the next level, extrusion, and then sequestration. And these are considered a, a hierarchy of disease. So bulge is the least problematic and sequestration is the most. So we need to be aware of that. That's the terms we're referring to is predominantly going to be protrusion and bulging because when we say these are not considered painful, these are the ones that have been studied well, okay? Because they are the most prevalent. You can imagine that the more extreme versions like um, sequestration where fluid comes out of the disc itself, those aren't as common, okay? So going back to the prevalence uh, so disc bulge at around age 30 is 40% and a disc protrusion is about 31%, 32%. So these are, these are pretty considerable findings. Mm -hmm. So if you go to a doctor and get that, you think you need surgery sometimes. You need to get a discectomy or uh, a laminectomy in the past. They would have done that. Mostly it's a discectomy where they cut a bit of the actual protruding tissue they cut it away and sew it up. You've just lost that part of the disc, mm. right? And with the knowledge that a large amount of these 41% of protrusions will come back into the disc, 41% on average will return back. And the, and the point of this actually is that that doesn't even matter if you're worried about pain because then on average, not painful. Mm. And there's no evidence they've ever are 
and you're blaming the wrong thing. Now, it's, it's again, it's present, but it doesn't mean it's the cause of the pain, right? A better argument would be what causes pain that we know for sure, okay? Nerve endings of pain receptors. They are where pain starts. They start by stimulating those pain receptors and that goes to signal to the brain and then the brain will decide whether you experience pain at that point. So it's possible that we're targeting the wrong thing because you'll see even more structures and diseases in the lower back aren't associated with pain. So is this a consequence, do you think, of misattribution to the effect as yeah. the cause? And they've yeah. done these scans. They've seen what they claim to be an abnormality and then pointed the blame at the, the thing that looks like a, an abnormality on the scan. So it's like if you went and did a blood test and you saw that your cholesterol was elevated and they've said, oh, the cholesterol is a problem because that's the one that's out of range. But in fact, it's an adaptation to keep your body going along day to day, yeah, so to speak. It, could, it Definitely adaptation. The, if we go down the conversation of why is it there, which isn't the same as, if it's causing pain or not. It, the question of why are these abnormal findings there and do they, why do they go up and up and up as you get older? Well, it does suggest that they're part of aging, number one. You could argue that just like osteoporosis, the decline in tissues can be associated with nutrition and lifestyle. So it, it could be that as well. Uh, bulging discs could be an indication of a sedentary lifestyle, you actually don't necessarily see them more prevalent in active people. Disbulges occur when people are unstable and they put themselves in positions where they're loaded and they can't maintain good disposition. It's a lot of it comes down to sedentary lifestyle. I, I think if you were to actually look at a broader, like thousands and thousands of people, which they aren't able to do, I think funding reasons, you would actually find that the predominance of these are occurring in people who don't move a lot. It's not people who move a lot. So runners actually have better looking discs than sedentary people. If you're an active runner on a daily, every two to every single day or every second day, you're actually, your lower back looks better on average than sedentary, a sedentary person. Right. So the idea that rest is better than ex exercise or exercise could damage your discs there's zero evidence for this, zero. Quite the contrary. Running makes your lower back healthier. Walking does too. So activity is everything with it when it comes to tissues. I mean, tissues are stimulated by vibration, load. It activates repair enzymes and things start to actually look younger. You know, so that's what we want. We want to maintain our tissues through use. Our system's amazing. It doesn't just wear out as you use it. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. And the more you use it, the healthier it is. So that whole argument, sorry to take you off track here, but it just brings it something to mind. You hear this argument all the time. Oh, I've got arthritis. I go to my doctor and he tells me that I don't have arthritis, but someone goes to their doctor and the doctor tells them that they've got arthritis and it's a wear and tear disease. So that's... Yeah. I mean, how much truth is there to something like this? Very little? Or? So 
in the osteoarthritis literature, the, the word wear and tear started to sort of disappear. Probably about 15, 20 years ago, you started to see less and less and more of a focus on inflammation markers rather than wear and tear. And because what I started to find is that when they did studies on pain-free individuals, particularly as they age, they found that they had a large amount of osteoarthritis and no pain, right? And what's, what's very interesting is that when you put comparison of these studies together, you'll find that there's very little difference between the groups. So level of severity, when you compare level of severity of the disease, say how severe is that osteoarthritis, you know, you'll actually find that that's not necessarily correlated with pain. So you might have really bad osteoarthritis, the doctor says, you should, you'll need a knee replacement or a hip replacement. That's not necessarily associated with any pain. Often people will come in, they'll say, well, they did say it's bone on bone, but I'm not really in pain. Hmm. But then the next person is in pain, but they attribute it to the knee osteoarthritis. All right, so when it comes to osteoarthritis, in particular knees, there's also studies on hips, but let's talk about knees. So most people will think as you get a scan, you've got knee pain, you find you've got osteoarthritis, knee degeneration, depends on the terminology, that that's probably their cause of pain. But actually, it's very unlikely that's the cause of pain. I mean, I've seen that in clinic myself. Uh, often it's uh, other structures around the knee that are causing the pain. Now, in this study that I'm going to reference, they are 230 knees, in other words, to um, 150 people, 230 knees, uh, of people who had no pain and no symptoms. So no loss of range of motion either, which is very interesting as well. So in the study, the median age was 44 years of age, okay? So they're not super young, but they're not super old. It's actually a really good age median. They found that 97% of the knees had abnormal findings, 97%. Okay, these abnormal findings are considered to be painful. 30% mm -hmm. of the knees had meniscus tears. Now, a meniscus tear is considered to be definitively painful, right? You wouldn't see anyone argue that if someone came in and had an MRI meniscus tear, you would think, well, that has to be painful. We're, we're kind of, it's dogma in my field that meniscus tears are painful and that they cause a lot of uh, problems with catching and um, in the knee and things like and clunking, right? Very little evidence to back this up. But here they are, 30% of people. Um, and it goes into the different types. Uh, but if we go down to the next one, cartilage and bone marrow, cartilage is the, the, the sort of glossy covering of a joint, that is where the degeneration occurs. Cartilage itself degrades. That's considered osteoarthritis, okay? Uh, bone marrow is the structure inside the bone. And in this context, it's below the cartilage. It's sort of sub-cartilage. So there's inflammation, microfractures, things like that, okay? So that's what those terms mean. And they found that, 50%, between 50 and 48, 55 and 48% of the knees had it. Wow. So of the- 40, These things aren't, uncom aren't uncommon. No, they're really common. Mm. So these so-called, this 
These are the kinds of conditions people get knee replacements for. Meniscus tears, people get uh, arthroscopies for all the time. Cartilage and bone marrow um, abnormalities, right? Now, remember, we've mentioned before, severity of cartilage degeneration and bone marrow edema is not associated with an increase in pain. Mm. So if you have more degeneration, it doesn't mean more pain. If you ever see a study that tries to state that, what you'll find is that they've actually removed a whole bunch of people from the study. They've removed people for really random reasons. And you'll probably find that this is a bit of a dodgy research paper to back, to basically confirm their own bias that, no, I was right all along. <laughs> yeah. If you don't remove these people that are actually, that make the study look bad for them, you find this. And that's why these are good because these studies are done um, in a way that basically you can tell there's lack of bias because they don't discern the difference between these groups. They just put them all in one. Okay. Mm -hmm. They don't start removing them. Okay. So that's, that's a large proportion of people mm -hmm. and all of these people are in no pain, half of the participants. So you could say extrapolate that to society and say that a 45 year old person, if they walk in, half of them will have knee osteoarthritis. Right? And they may not even complain to you that they're in pain, even though they're walking Quite into your clinic with it. The vast majority have no knee pain. Okay? Yeah, the vast majority. And you can't then go and say it's osteoarthritis causing your knee pain, considering the percentages aren't any different. So, so in the populations, it's the same as the discs. The osteoarthritis group here, they've all got degeneration. These have all got degeneration. The likelihood of which one has pain, right, is the same. They've, this has just as much likelihood of no pain, and this is just as much likelihood of pain. Now, I'll rephrase that. That's actually incorrect. If someone has pain in this group, this group's all got knee pain, and this group has all no knee pain, the likelihood of them having osteoarthritis is the same. That's what I meant to say which basically means you can't associate them because what you want to see is a huge skewing towards pain, but you don't see that. And in some studies, it's like a few percentage points. And like, look, it's clearly towards pain. Like, no, 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 you can't. And you, you know that they're playing with, with the uh, results a little bit. And we know how bad research is done these days. So, you know, 70, what is it, 70 to 80% of them can't be replicated. Yeah. Thing about a lot of the ones I'm stating is the meta-analysis. This is meta-analysis. Okay. So so just, just on that yeah. point, a 40-year-old male or a very high percentage of people in their 40s have degeneration of some type of joint, whether it be in their back, in their knee, in their hip, wherever, and it's not causing any pain. No. 15, 20 years down the track, they start getting pain in one of those areas. They go to their doctor and they get a scan and the doctor says, oh, well, that degeneration is the cause of the pain. Yeah. And that's not the that's, case. That's what from... we see on every, every, every day. And that's what, that's what they're the billables for the surgeons, the orthopedic surgeons is the knee replacement, the hip replacement, um, the lumbar discectomy. You know, without these, it's not a, it's not a viable business. Um, I am pointing the finger. I really do believe that there is a huge bias towards believing that they are painful, even though the evidence is contrary. So then you'll ask the question, I mean, well, what's causing the pain? A little bit like 
You might say, well, if COVID's not real, then what, what's really causing my sickness, right? It's the same question in a different context. And what really causes pain is nerves, right? So nerves, without nerves, you don't get pain. Nerves transmit pain. Nerves are susceptible to changes in their blood flow, which causes pain. Okay, there's a really important finding in the last 10 to 15 years is that nerve pain, right, is actually not necessarily what you think it would be. Like you think nerve pain is sharp pain, right, sharp shooting pain, but all the evidence doesn't suggest that. Pain, pain from nerves can be any kind of pain. Right. could be an ache, could be a throb. Could be a sharp shooting pain, could be a burn, could be a, you know, a sting, stinging. Okay. Because they are all nerves without the, the type, the type of pain doesn't suggest what it is. It's very important to remember that because a lot of people use that as a diagnostic criteria. They, well, that's they say, right. That, oh, that's well, what that's I got. Nerve. It's an ache, can't be nerve because it's an ache. No. That's what I got taught going through yeah. college all- and even my, uh, my, uh, massage diploma they were trying to tell me that different types of pain could tell you or direct you to understand what type of tissue is being affected x pain equals muscle pain x pain equals tendon pain x pain equals nerve pain and i was always a bit sort of skeptical on that you were right to be you know there is there is no i mean this is i'm going to clarify what i mean by this but i'll just say it because it's outrageous there's no such thing as bone pain there's no such thing as skin pain there's no such thing as muscle pain and you could extrapolate that into other areas because even if you think it's muscle pain muscles don't transmit the pain signal hmm. it's nerve that does so every single bit of transmission of pain is through nerves whether you think it's a muscle pain or not the truth is there are all nerve pains they're all, all nerve, pain. nerve pains there are there's a caveat to that is when a nerve has been severely compressed that the nerve is no longer functioning properly and you get numbness tingling weakness in muscles that's not what i'm referring to that is a separate thing Okay, that's a change in the structure of the nerve resulting in a functional impairment of the nerve. That doesn't mean you have to have all that to have nerve pain. But a lot of people don't know that. People think that you have to have something else to classify as nerve pain or sharp shooting. And coming back to the disc bulges into the nerve, like the classic thing is, well, if I didn't get it repaired the bulge would still be pushing in on my nerve and my back and I'd still be getting sciatica. The truth is, the truth is, it's almost never the case that that causes it. Because when you've had, they've actually done studies on this where they prod this nerve root, and they prod it with like a little uh, rounded end um, probe and they put pressure on it. And it's so rare that it replicates. And these are patients that are, Basically, these are humans, <laughs> human beings, feeling this pressure on in their spine. And what they could, only thing that they could ever replicate was pins and needles and numbers. They could never get pain. There's a couple of cases, like very small number of them got a little bit of pain. But if you've got something prodded in your back, it's likely at some point. But if you really actually get to the, the crux of it, 
pressing on that nerve root of the back where they say discs bulge into and cause pain and sciatica doesn't actually cause a lot of pain when it's actually studied with appropriate science, which is literally replicating it with a probe. And you just can't, you can't replicate it. So mechanical pressure force mm. is not the cause of the nerve pain. There's something else no. causing the nerve pain. My guess is that in the back, if you were to say, what is the potential cause? Well, I would say biochemical. It would have to be biochemical. It would have to be an acid. Um, you could argue that acids coming out of the disc sequestration is they're very kind of acidic um, and inflammation. That acid might have a negative effect on pain receptors, pain receptors in the area. But that doesn't mean that we're putting the disc, cutting the disc and all this stuff's going to fix it. Okay. And remember, surgery is one of the most potent placebos. Surgery, when you've done comparative studies of surgery, people who get surgery and people who don't get surgery but get a mock pretend surgery, and that's particularly been done in the knees, they find that whether you've had the actual real surgery or just a fake surgery, nothing's been done. The results are the same. So people believe they're better. When you so how do you do a how's a fake surgery done? Uh, you cut them open and you just close them up. Right. So they've done studies where they've gone in and done like an arthroscopy in someone's knee. Yep. They've, they've actually it up, done it. Yeah. Yeah. And they've had another group of people where they've just cut the skin and closed it up. Yeah. And what happened? No difference. <laughs> Identical. Statistical no. difference. Yeah. And that's that's why there was a huge uproar in the in the orthopedic community where you know a bunch of them were like, okay, we're not going to do it anymore. Those days are over, you know, and then a bunch that still do it because they hold, they're holding on, you know, mm. holding on to their beliefs. Uh, it's very easy to 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 have an idea and follow that idea on a daily basis, and when it works, it works, and you go see it worked because my thought on that was correct. And when it doesn't work, you come up with any any number of reasons why it didn't work. And of course, we all know we all seen this before. Uh, this this kind of uh, reasoning error is classic in humans okay so we need to do our own bit of investigating a person comes in if you get a scan that's already an issue as soon as you start getting mris your your likelihood of having surgery goes up you know it's it basically you fall into the abyss that mri creates uh, it's a little bit like as soon as you get take a drug your likelihood of taking more drugs is going to go up right polypharma is just around the corner and it's the same for scans. You're going to get more and more scans, more and more analysis. Oh, we can't figure out your pain. We're going to have to go in there and do something. Are these uh, scans? Are these scans worthwhile at all? Only to pick up serious life-threatening pathology. There, there are very clear signs. Like for example, uh, in the shoulder, you have a very, you have a particular kind of shoulder complaint that looks like. Um, they're really stiff and painful, like and very difficult to lift their arm overhead, mm. and it's painful. It often is called frozen shoulder, even if it, without a diagnostic test. Um, and some of those can be osteosarcoma. So in those cases, an X-ray is required. I, I err on the side of caution with that and say, look, your likelihood of this is pretty much nil, but let's rule it out. Let's rule it out. 
Now, that's not the same as going in and getting an MRI for lower back pain and seeing a disbulge and going, better get onto that, better go and get the knife and open it up. It's very different because one can be life-threatening, definitely, and the other is not, right? And we can't forget everything we've said. You know, we, we need to reclassify what is a bad, potentially painful condition. Um, I will mention a few other things before mm. I mention what is the potential solution to all of this and what is the potential cause. Tendinopathies are another one. Tendinitis is the colloquial term, but, you know, it's not really an inflammatory condition, but tendinopathy, where your tendon looks abnormal on a scan, right? The, the likelihood of that causing pain is actually very, very low. And, in fact, it, do, it makes a lot of sense why it is because tendons actually don't have in most of the studies that I've ever seen, no pain receptors. So tendons don't even have pain receptors. And whenever you see someone trying to prove the point, they'll say, well, pain receptors are in the tissues surrounding the tendon. It's a pretty bad argument. Um, tendinopathy, it, like many people, like other conditions, is an adaptation process, okay? If you bother with it that much, you're going to end up basically with not much result. The truth is, is that if nerves cause pain, which in my opinion they do, and I think I'd love you to see, I'd love to see a paper that disputed that, uh, what causes those to be activated and start signaling? Well, nerves are actually very susceptible to activating and causing pain. In fact, you can just get random pains in the body all the time and they just go away, right? You don't think any of it. Uh, you can bump your elbow and it not be painful at all. You can bump your elbow and it can be really painful, okay? The difference is, is that when a nerve is actually physically involved in that condition, it's painful, right? When it's not, it's not painful, okay? That's, that's a sort of a generalization, but it's a good rule to work from. Makes Nerves sense. need certain things. So these are the things that end up causing nerves to be a problem. Other than obvious things like blunt force trauma, bang, onto a nerve. There's a nerve here. Bang, that's going to hurt, right? Because of blunt force trauma. Another thing is biochemical. Like, for example, uh, you might have a drug that causes an irritation to nerves, okay? And we don't know this full spectrum what drugs do that necessarily, and each person's different. But you'll often see once I removed X drug, I just no longer... Um, got nerve pain like statins i mean statins are a low-hanging fruit for that okay um but generally speaking what it is is that the nerve blood supply is diminished now this is actually well backed up in the neuro in the neuropathy um, which is nerve entrapment the neuropathy science it's actually a very niche area uh it will become mainstream at some point but people don't understand nerves very well because they don't learn enough about them at uni when all these orthopedic people don't learn about nerves to the extent that the experts do in the field of neuropathy, and my area is that, they're not going to look at it. They're not going to see lower back pain as nerve compression. They're not going to see it like that. They're going to see it as discs and all the things we've mentioned. So we need to reclassify. We need to open up the idea that nerves are the cause, what's affecting them. Okay. So in each part of the body, you have a, like an anatomical pathway for a nerve. 
it has to go through muscle, underneath the muscle, around a bone, through tissue, through fascia, between fascia layers. Fascia is like this fibrous tissue that covers our whole body. Lots of different areas, okay? Lots of different pathways, lots of potential issues. And as it moves around those areas, it can get in trouble. It can get caught. And sometimes it's not like this kind of caught. It's just like it's pressing up against something and it's got a lot of blood supply surrounding it. So there's lots of blood vessels and it just needs a diminishment of that blood supply. And what you get is a change in the production of ATP towards, uh, towards the production of too much lactic acid. Uh, so you basically get a diminishment of oxygen levels because of the reduction in blood flow. And then your lactic acid starts to go up. That lactic acid actually it's, it divides into hydrogen, but that itself is what's activating the pain. That process in nearly every single situation is what's causing the pain in a person that walks into my clinic, that walks into any clinic, but no one looks at it like that. Mm-hmm. And the reason they don't is they just don't know that. They don't know that you only need a very small reduction in blood supply to that nerve for it to activate a pain signal. And as soon as it does that, a lot of things can go wrong. And if it stays like that, you can get multiple areas that get entrapped because tension in one area creates tension in another Mm. because it's a big long wire. And if you pull on one end, the other end starts to get a bit tense. So you're going to get this in lots of areas. That's why a lot of people will come in with multiple areas of pain. They'll be like a little bit in my back, a bit in my glute, and in the front of my leg, and then you know, and then they're all nerves. If you know the anatomy of nerves, you'll know that all those sites are nerves, and it's so easy to figure that out because you can actually diagnostically go and inflict the nerve, and then next to it, there's nothing. It's Mm -hmm. not like the whole area is a problem. And everyone would always used to say, you know, oh, it's all referred from the lower back. It's all referred. It's all referred. Yeah. Uh, that's actually not that common. In my experience now, I've actually found if it hurts there, it's probably there. It's probably right there. The brain is actually pretty good at it. We've never been able to really prove how referred pain works. So I'm not surprised because the, the, the kind of theory, the running theory is that, all these converging nerves come to one point and that that one point is the commonality between this area and that. And so you've got this converging nerve fibers. And so therefore, because they converge there, if, if you've got a nerve problem here, you'll feel it in the other pathway. But it's never been backed up with solid science. It's, it's a theory until the end, hypothesis really. So we're dealing with it now that if nerves really are the cause... And, you know, every single nerve problem has potential causes. You know, like, for example, if you're in your lower back, if you sit all day and you put pressure on your glutes or you put pressure on your back, you just sit there all day, do you think the blood flow is going to be that great in the lower back? Well, it's not going to be great. And it's wonder why people get up and move around and go, oh, my back feels better because the blood flow increases and nerves need blood. Nerves need oxygen. And if you see everything as basically a blood supply problem. Now, there are going to be caveats to this. I know know, there are are examples where this isn't correct, but the vast majority of this, that's why I'm saying it so flippantly. I'm saying start to think of it like this, because if you start thinking of it as it's my discs, 
It's my meniscus tear. It's my osteoarthritis. You're not really dealing with the problem. You're dealing with a completely not necessarily painful thing. And it diverts the attention away from the real thing. So in your knee, it's the same thing. There are a bunch of nerves that go into the tendon where you think you have tendinopathy. There's a bunch of nerves that go around the meniscus areas that are getting caught there. And that's giving you that so-called meniscus pain. Okay. And that's why if you, once you understand all these conditions, you can under then lay on top nerve entrapments. You'll actually see that those are actually exactly where those pains that people experience so-called conditions that are we've now shown to not actually be painful. So we need to rewrite the text. It needs to be rewritten a little bit. I think it'll take years to get everyone on board, but I'm not the only one that thinks this way in the world of musculoskeletal medicine and interventional musculoskeletal, which is uh, injections of, of things, particularly now with uh, glucose and saline, there are, there's a huge movement in that field towards nerves and rejecting the past beliefs that we've talked about. So it's good. It's actually happening. People are changing their thoughts about it. So where my mind is going with what you're saying here is when the scan is done and the damage is seen, the damage that they see is being said to be the cause of the problem. When that's actually the consequence of a deeper underlying cause, mm. Uh, which by the sounds of it is a chemical type yeah, I mean, aggravation look, of the tissue. Yeah, I mean, look, more complicated. And, you know, no one wants to talk about complex conditions. If lifestyle factors are in play, dietary factors can be too. Uh, poor electrolyte status can be uh, water intake. Uh, stress does play a role. And, and that's another one. I mean, this is so ambiguous. We can't just point the finger at a structure and then get rid of it. I mean, this is what medicine wants. Medicine doesn't want complicated answers like, oh, okay, now you're going to need to eat better. Oh, okay, that, what does that mean? And then you're going to have to drink more water. You're going to have to have salt in your water. You're going to have, you know, these things that nerves thrive on. Nerves need energy. Nerves need hydration. They need fat. They need lots of things to function normally. Um, and then we haven't even got onto the whole idea of oxygen supply, blood flow, lack of blood flow. What's causing that? Is it some of the drugs you're on? Is it some, if some lifestyle factors, lack of exercise, you know, it goes on and on and on. Before, and, sorry, but, mate, before we get to that, hmm, there's a big sorry. one that comes up all the time. That is a pet peeve of mine. I hear clinicians always talking about this, that inflammation caused the problem that, the inflammation was the thing that damaged the tissue. Oh, it's the chronic inflammation's fault. No. What's your perspective on this? Just because it's present doesn't mean it's the cause, right? We know that. We know that from many different examples. I will say something. When nerves are activated, they do a very interesting thing. They release a substance or three different substances. They're called neurokinins right? One famous one's called substance P, another one's called CGRP and neurokinin A. But basically what they do, two things, they create inflammation, right? And which is also part of it, increased blood flow. And they release it themselves. If you have a nerve entrapped in your shoulder, that inflammation theoretically could be released in the hand because that same nerve goes to the hand, right? So 
the nerve itself, the whole thing could be occurring just in the nerve. You don't need the immune system playing its role. You don't need all that to get inflammation. Inflammation is the attempt to resolve the problem. When you see that a nerve is releasing neurokinins, it's trying to dilate the blood vessels. It's trying to change the oxygen status. Yeah. Okay? So if you see any of these like other inflammatory markers, you know, it might be histamine, it might be bradykinin, and, you know, you mentioned a million different ones, interleukins, right? These aren't necessarily the cause of the pain by themselves. No, just because they activate pain receptors doesn't mean they're the cause and doesn't mean they drive the disease because they are the answer to disease. Uh, if you really look at the truth of how they work, they clean up debris, they initiate a healing response, and without them, you're going to have knees and joints and things that never resolve. They never, they never heal without inflammation. You see that with people who are chronically on NSAIDs or anti-inflammatories, they get more osteoarthritis. They get more tendinopathy. In fact, the tendon researchers now say, if you have um, neurofen or you know, ibuprofen, you are taking something that is tenotoxic, tendon toxic. Mm. It degrades tendons. It also degrades ligaments in a rapid phase when you're trying to heal them. Okay. And cartilage. And the cartilage. very, the very well, thing that people with osteoarthritis take to quell the pain is the thing that's driving. I wonder why they're getting worse or not getting better, you know? And and the answer is more inflammation. In fact, I, I truly believe that if you were to enhance inflammation's effect and get it up to a peak, because inflammation has to peak and then before it can trough, because it's if it's if what we think is true with, with most inflammatory responses. You need the triggering of the inverse gene. You need to actually activate the opposing system, which is to start to repair. But it only will do that once it reaches a threshold of inflammation. So if it stays at a low level of inflammation, it doesn't peak it. It doesn't activate it adequately. So you never get a good strong healing response. It's kind of that seesaw effect. If you don't get a sufficient inflammatory response, you won't get the opposing um, anabolic repair response. So, so just on on this whole talk about inflammation, uh, specifically for musculoskeletal issues, when someone has an injury, the very first thing that we're told to do is apply ice to take anti-inflammatories, to elevate it, to compress it, to stop the inflammatory process. So mm -hmm. is it possible that that's causing chronic issues because that acute inflammatory response to heal the damage to the tissue was never mounted by the body. Rice, the rest ice compression. You know, this this is this is this garbage. This stuff is <laughs> it is trash. It's trash science, and it's based on the belief that ice is such a great suppressor of inflammation, and that obviously we've already a flawed statement here because suppressing inflammation is is not actually a good idea when you're trying to repair, right? Because if people say, well, reducing inflammation helps to get the you know inflammation out of the way so we can repair. They don't get that inflammation removes debris, the debris that is just produced by the injury. And if you keep that debris there, you reactivate the inflammation cycle. So you're basically screwed. If you don't let it happen, mm. you're suppressing something that will just keep trying to happen. Mm. So you're just going to be locked in an inflammatory cycle. And that has a very negative effect on nerves if you let it stay that way for a long time. 
okay? And there's like, that's to do with acids, right? Coming back to the whole idea of rest ice compression, there's another issue with rest and ice and all this is that it doesn't help blood flow, number one. Mm. Blood flow increases healing response, duh, right, obviously. If you don't, if you ice something, right, you, the only positive effect of it is a little bit of, of a numbing effect, and that's that's definite, okay? Maybe ice is used that way, right, to sort of reduce pain without the need of a, you know, painkiller. But the problem is ice can damage nerves. So if you chuck an ice pack straight on your ankle, you're exposing a superficial nerve there called the superficial fibular nerve, exactly where that so-called sprain has occurred, and you're actually putting it directly on the nerve. And there was a study done by the British Journal of Sports Medicine and found that a considerable amount of people, I, I can't remember the exact percentage, it's probably no more than 20%, it's probably under 10, actually got nerve damage hmm. from icing their ankle after a sprain. Crazy. Yet, rest, ice compression, elevation, blah, 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 versus no intervention had no difference in outcomes. Right. But the ice can cause damage. So, therefore... By logic, it should be taken out. Mm. You should eliminate this whole idea of elevation and you should just start moving. If you can move, keep moving. In fact, my experience now is if you eliminate fear of that limb, right, of hurting that limb, half the pain's gone. As soon as you're not fearful of it, you're not in any more pain, right, because you're, you're anticipating pain. Mm. You need to start walking. Most people... I mean, every case is different, but in majority of cases of ankle sprains, as an example, if people just start to move and don't don't put their leg up, they just keep walking. I had an example where I landed badly um, one day uh, doing an exercise and my ankle blew up. I had a sprain on the inside of my ankle. And I, and you know, you, you think, oh, I better stop moving. You know, yeah. It's, it's cool. No. So what I decided to do was I decided to walk. So I walked for half an hour was all up was about half an hour and you know what i actually forgot about it and then i realized an hour later i'm like hang on a sec my ankle was sprained and i looked down and it wasn't swollen anymore and the pain had completely gone now obviously that's not going to be everyone but mine i was hobbling so mm. when i went for the walk i kept walking through that discomfort walking mm. through that discomfort being aware and i know that that's just nerve pain you know you've got to remember that ligament tears aren't necessarily painful now this gets into a complicated question of shouldn't you be resting it so it can heal no i wasn't doing stupid things i wasn't jumping up and down i was just walking walking ain't killing anyone it's not hurting anyone right walking is positive for nearly every single condition okay so an ankle sprain actually improves outcomes this improves your outcomes for that sprain if you just start to move it mm. I would say in my industry now, the majority of people would believe that, um, which is good. You know, you're not actually, not everyone's into the rice thing anymore, which is great. But it's a very difficult thing to remove from the landscape. You know, every, if you don't do it, you're considered negligent. The truth yeah. is, is that rice is probably more negligent than not. That's the truth. Yeah. 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 So back to the whole chemical yeah. The body initiates inflammation to drive blood flow to yep. the area. 
to bring oxygen there. So you're yeah. talking about lactic acid. So when you get a buildup of lactic acid, the oxygen comes in to convert the lactic acid back to pyruvate. So it brings that lactic acid level down. Well, lactic gets signal. Signal suggests that there's a low blood supply in the area, right? Yeah. It's a net, net effect. Um, and then well, what do people do to get rid of lactic acid? They move. They don't sit around. They go and they swim more. If you've got a swimmer that's just done a big race, what do they do to get rid of the lactic acid? They move, right? So blood supply is obviously an important part of that, like you've mentioned, right? But what it really is, it comes down to the one thing. The nerve signals, uh, it releases a chemical. That chemical makes the blood supply increase. Lactic acid starts to get eliminated. Problem starting to resolve itself. Yeah. It's a system where it fixes itself, okay? We only need to intervene, for example, itself, when that nerve's compression is unresolvable by the body. Mm -hmm. right? And that can happen. That's why we have chronic pain or we have pain that's not resolved within the you know, few hours. The majority of people's pains go away. They come and they go. Mm. Oh, I've got a bit of a sore shot. It's okay now. You know, this pain here, there are nerves in here. There's about three or four different nerves that can cause this shoulder pain here. Okay. Everyone thinks it's their trap, their mm. muscle here. They go, oh, it's sore. But did you know that the tightness of that muscle is inversely correlated? In other words, not correlated with pain. When right. they compare the sides of the traps muscles and the level of pain, they find that it's more likely to be looser than tighter. When you have more pain. Where you have more pain. And there's lots of reasons for that. They're neurological in origin. But what people don't know is that if you pinch your skin, Often, this is because one nerve is actually in the skin, not in the muscle and not below the muscle. Just at the skin, if you pinch the skin just above that point that's painful, mm. it should sting because there's a nerve entrapment that occurs in the fascia over the top of it. Right. And now we have these techniques to massage and manipulate the nerve in the superficial skin where you would think, no, 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 the problem's in there, in the muscle underneath. Yeah. Because what we think is because we push on it and we rub it, we feel it's tight, even though you never check it before that was painful. You wouldn't know the difference. Mm. And we go, that's why it's, that's why it's sore. Mm. But it, the truth of it is that there's the muscle, there's the nerve, and we're pushing on the nerve above. We're kind of stupid like that. If we don't know really the neuroanatomy of an area. We would just, we presume it's whatever we feel. We can only really feel the muscle. So the truth is everything's been more complicated than people realize. And that goes down trigger points as well. Basically, if, if anyone's still believing in trigger points, they need, to, they need to research more because trigger points have never been proven. And when they have these so-called proven studies that prove the existence, they are so biased and they never have controls. So they are not useful studies. And I, I love them. I, I, I love that they're trying to prove it for years now. The truth is, if you look at a trigger point and you compare it to the map of nerve entrapment sites that have been mapped out already by researchers and clinicians, you'll find that they're identical. Mm. So the truth is probably that all these so-called trigger points that are points that hurt are just nerve entrapments. Right. Now that means that a lot of the therapies that have been done like needling and um, all sorts of injections and massage, would work still because they help with blood flow. They help with moving the nerve and 
but it's got nothing to do with a band of muscle all tight and caught like that. It's more to do with the nerves in the area. Mm. So this uh, prevalence of musculoskeletal issues that we're seeing, because like, let's face it, a lot of people have got some sort of tendinopathy or arthritis or a disc bulge or whatever is being driven by what poor diet, poor lifestyle, inactivity, dehydration, not breathing properly, stress. It, it, am I over the, the mark here? Or I, I mean, I... it's heterogeneous. There's many causes, right? Yeah. Nerve pain, it's like headache. You know, all headaches are, are actually nerve pain, right? Mm -hmm. There's lots of causes of headaches, okay, strangely, but there's also lots of nerves that can cause headaches. You know, there's a nerve that runs here. That's one headache. There's a nerve that runs just in here. That's another headache. There's a nerve in here. That's another headache. You know, and, and in the back, there's three different nerves there on each side. So which one is it, you know, and then they have the relationship between the neck and the headache. And so look, there's a lot of potential sources of like for, for the cause. Lifestyle factors do come into play a lot. And that's why I say like someone comes in and they're, you know, that's probably a, a lot of the reason why smoking is so associated with problems, you know, and uh, because smoking has a negative effect on, on your blood oxygen so there's that but then you've also got dehydrations affecting your blood pressure mm. it could be that it could also be electrolyte status and definitely have found that people who drink like a few glasses of water in one sitting their pain is improved mm. from water i mean you could say that's that's just to do with hydration tissue hydration nothing to do with blood flow but i would say it's more to do with blood flow interesting um, yeah, and, and there's another reason why how you're positioned matters, right? So if you're positioned in a way that hampers blood flow to an area, mm. you probably get pain there. If you then move and it gets better, it's probably because blood flow is returned. Right. Okay. Yeah, and so that's kind of like everything. If you think of it like that, you've got a sore area, well, what exactly could be impeding the blood flow to that area? And that's what you need to consider. I mean, I've had some stupid things. Like I've had people where... It's because of how they hold their arm on their desk. Their desk, the pressure of that arm being in that forward position, it just stays there the whole day. It doesn't even move. Mm. You know, it's not always that simple, but a lot of things are uh, as simple as sitting down reduces blood flow in certain parts of the body. Standing up and moving helps it. It can be that simple, but where it goes wrong and it, may, it can't get out of it is where that nerve starts adhering to structures and actually sticking because if you if you're staying in that state of low blood supply and your body's trying to initiate more and more blood and trying to resolve the problem itself you can get certain um adhering type molecules that because of a, a bit a little bit of an immune response by the nerve talked about that trying to improve the blood flow the side effect of that is sometimes that the nerve gets sticky and it starts to adhere and can't move off a structure Right. And therefore, it's it's kind of worse at that point, and you need an intervention. So that's why I use therapies that basically attempt to take that nerve and pull it off, like shockwave of sound waves going in, trying to like move it away from that structure without damaging the nerve. And that's another reason why laser is effective because laser improves blood supply. Mm. Put a laser over the nerve, and that nerve has a reduction in oxygen, and you get that nitric oxide out. Um, Eflux, flux, flux, and you get an improvement in blood supply, 
Well, there's no wonder it works. You know, that's not the only reason it works, but that's one. Uh, and that's probably why massage often works. And sometimes it doesn't work. It's probably just a variation in the way it was done. You know, if you were to just hold pressure on a nerve is not necessarily a good idea, but if you were to flush and move a nerve, like you see some massage therapists not doing it deliberately, mm-hmm. trying to massage a muscle, they're probably actually affecting the nerve in a positive way. Right. And that's another reason why movement and stretching is good because nerves will thrive with movement. With movement. But they really need to be moved. Yeah. That's why I say to everyone, like, you know, sitting around is not the solution to pain. Yeah. You've got to get up and moving if you can. And if you've ever seen anyone wearing a brace, often that's not always, but often it's completely unneeded. And it, and it may be having a negative effect on their recovery. So all the misunderstandings that we have where we see the effect and we label it as the cause actually the cause is inputs into the body which irritate the nerve the nerve generates an inflammatory response and a pain signal so what we want to do is go to those causes which as you said a lot of people don't want to deal with because it involves changing their diet changing their lifestyle uh, not sitting at a desk sedentary, you know, you have to take time out of your day to stand up every so often and, and move around. Like these are the things that are addressing the underlying cause. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't want to do that because it's inconvenient. So they'd rather still go down the path of do the scan, do the surgery or do the drug therapy. So how do we change this perspective and, and do you think that it is changing in the field of musculoskeletal medicine or is it still it, it is but i don't think realize. I, I just i think the nerve one will be the last bastion once people realize that you know their their attempt to try to resolve the tissue abnormality is flawed mm. like it's not the problem the problem of the pain mm. and you see this in like posture analysis people get so into how their posture looks and they think that it's their cause Posture has very little to do with pain. Uh, and people will argue with me about that. They're like, well, yeah, but when I correct my posture, I feel better. I'm like, yeah, that's very anecdotal. That mm. doesn't mean that the posture is causing it. Okay. Right. Posture, I would say posture is a reflection of your lifestyle, number one. But number two, posture can also be a reflection of your pain. The body can actually go into a very odd positioning, twist bones out of alignment, to put shoulders up and put them back and forward and all sorts of things take away from the neural tension with a nerve pressure. And they actually do that without even feeling the nerve pain. So a lot of people have these weird postures, asymmetrical posture, and think that, well, I've got to correct that to get rid of the pain. I'm like, no, 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 that's not. When, once your pain is gone, your posture will probably resolve itself. Right. Don't get bogged down in posture. Posture does matter right, for movement and being able to do things. Like if you're hunched over and you want to lift weight above your head, well, it's going to be very difficult to do that. So you need to do motion um, stretching and things like that to get your back straighter to be able to do those kinds of things. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the average Joe that thinks, if I don't correct my posture and I don't keep getting treatments to correct the posture, I'll never get out of pain. Mm. It's a very flawed logic, okay? But a lot of people will argue with me about that because of their experience, we know, all know what experience means. It's anecdotal and your confirmation bias is running rampant. Yeah. So we can't let that be the evidence. We have to say, 
It might be in certain circumstances, but if you just blatantly disbelieve it, then you, 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 you're already, you're lost. You're lost to their cognitive, um, not cognitive dissonance, but cognitive bias. Mm. Yeah, it seems like a lot of that going on, not just in the musculoskeletal field, but Everywhere. all fields of medicine. Uh, that's awesome, Emerus. There's so much good information there. And it's after we had that conversation the other day, it really shifted my perspective on a lot of things that I had been taught previously. And I'm grateful that you came on today to explain that because I think the information that you provided will be of a lot of benefit to many people. How do people learn more from you or if they want to come and see you for a consult, uh, where do they contact you? Yeah. Uh, I will just say that people need to do, people need to start a proactive behavior. Right. Passive treatment, like you fix me and I won't do anything. That's not a solution. So it's mm. a starting point. Get active, number one. Be more active. That might be going to the gym. It might be walking. It might be running. It, it doesn't matter. Be more active. That's always a better than nothing. Okay. Make sure you're appropriately hydrated and have enough electrolytes like salt in your diet. Make sure that, you know, psychology is right. Like if you're in, in a state of fear all the time, it's not an easy thing to fix overnight, but it can really have a negative effect on your pain levels. Okay. Living in fear makes you more likely to experience pain. Okay. Uh, but the other one is breathing before I go on about what I do. Breathing is everything. So whether it be a Wim Hof breathing method or another type of breathing method where you increase your oxygen levels in your body they're incredibly useful. Um, oxygen, good for nerves. Simplify it down to that. More oxygen, better nerves, less pain on average. Mm. Okay. And with all of this not working for you and not enough to resolve the problem, you're dealing with something that just is a roadblock, right? That's where I come in. I don't come in before, okay? Right. Often I'll have to give that advice. So people come in with nerve pain because it's nearly always that 99% of the time. And you basically, everything I'm trying to do is to untether that nerve. Okay. It's not always that easy because it can be chronically stuck and sometimes it's scar tissue as well. So that's ultimately my aim is to improve that. And a lot of the time it'll be about improving your strength so that you don't compensate as well and all sorts of things. Okay. To get you better as quickly as possible. In as, as limited time, a lot of people, you know, they have so much pain, they want to get better like that. And the good thing about um, once you deal with nerves, you're more likely to get better quickly than if you do rehab exercises for six months. It's not going to be like that. So I work at in Brisbane, uh, in Baden. So my clinic name is Athletica Physical Health. So my website, athleticaphysicalhealth.com.au. And I see clients every day here in my practice. And uh, we, work, we work through a number of different problems. Um, I also do a lot of work with the vagus nerve and other autonomic nervous system problems uh, all the time because if that's another speciality of mine. And they all cross over all the time, as you can imagine. And uh, we didn't get onto nerve entrapments in the intestines. Um, there's a bunch of different conditions that are associated with nerves that we haven't mentioned, but just sticking to this, my expertise is in, is in injury. 
right? And I really just changing how I work. And since doing that, changing towards a different perspective, results have been astronomically different, astronomically different. I always wondered, what am I getting wrong? I was taught one thing. It was what we've talked about, the belief that these conditions are painful and you've got to do X, Y, and Z to make them better. And I wondered that approach, it's, it doesn't always work. And the majority of times it doesn't. And I'm trying to figure out why moving towards nerves, the, the clarity that was that just handed to me by try, changing my method was staggering. Um, that's another reason why I'm fully on board with this idea and this concept because the proof is in the results. Mm. Uh, I see it so much more than I used to with the old ideas. And what about training for clinicians who want to learn more? Are you still running workshops? Yeah, and so often, yeah once, twice a year, I'll run a course on nerve entrapment treatment um, and vagus nerve stimulation is the other one. Um, I'm setting up for a new round of courses, hopefully by the middle of the year. Um, it'll be on my website and my social media. So you can follow me on Instagram. It's more than likely on Instagram at Emrys Goldsworthy or athletica underscore physical underscore health. Uh, but you'll be able to find that once you find Emrys Goldsworthy on Instagram and I'll publicize it there. That'll be in Brisbane. Fantastic. I'll make sure I put links to your website and Instagram and everything on the show notes so people can get in contact with you, whether it be for treatment or as a clinician, they want to find out more. Uh, thank you, Emerus, for giving your time and telling us all about how we're getting the uh, musculoskeletal, the, the misunderstanding the causes. Yeah. I think that's really important. It seems to have occurred a lot in medicine. We're mis misattributing the effect as the cause. And okay. yeah, the more I learn from people like yourself and others i realize that there's a lot of unlearning and relearning to do but when we do understand the truth of the matter it all makes a lot more sense and certainly what you've put forward today makes complete sense to me so i appreciate it no worries mate thank you awesome thanks again thank you thanks for tuning in we hope you enjoyed the show the ideas discussed on this podcast do not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com forward slash podcast and join the discussion. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Until next time.